following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison, while the rest of you go and take grain back to your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me, so that your words may be verified and you may not die. They said to one another, Surely we will be punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life. We would not listen. That's why distress has come on us. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver bag in his sack, and to give them provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, they loaded their grain on the donkey and left. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey, and he saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank, and they turned to each other, trembling, and said, What is this that God has done to us? Now the famine was still severe in the land. So when they had eaten all the grain bought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah said to him, The man warned us solemnly, You will not see my face again unless my brother is with you. Send the boy along with me, and we will go at once, so that we and you and our children may live and will not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. So the men took the gifts and doubled the amount of silver, and Benjamin also. They hurried down to Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. When Joseph saw that Benjamin was with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my house, slaughter an animal, and prepare a meal. They are to eat with me at noon. When portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as big as anyone else's. So they feasted and drank freely with him. Well, good morning. It's great to be back with you uh, for this Mosaic series. And if you're visiting, you've stumbled into uh, what we're calling a collaboration. Three churches here in Auckland, Shaw and Grace City in Green Lane and Summit Church, where I'm from in Botany, are combining for this series. And so I'm here at Shaw. Uh, your pastor, Reuben, he's in Green Lane at Grace City Church today, doing three sermons, by the way, today. So you can pray for him. He'll be pretty shot by the end of the day. And then the pastor from there, Jonathan, he's out in East Auckland, where I'm from, at Botany, uh, preaching. And it's been really fun. The three of us are having a blast. I don't know if you're enjoying it or not, um, getting different people trotting in, but we are certainly having a great time in this series. And so it's wonderful to be, to be with you again today for my second installment with you in this Mosaic series. 
Hey, and I just want to say too how excited I am about being here in three weeks' time for this feast seminar. It's a seminar that I've spent some time putting together for ordinary Christians to help you dive into God's Word much more. And so if that's something you've been interested in, then I just want to add my invitation along with Michael's and the leadership. It would be great to have you at the Hub on Saturday the 26th. Come and spend a day with me, and I want to give you the tools, but even more importantly, the confidence to dive into God's Word for yourself. So I hope you'll come and be part of that day uh, with us. Let's pray, shall we, as we jump into God's Word together. Lord, we just want to pause in this moment, quieten our hearts before you. We want to say thank you for your word, the richness of the Bible, your inspired scriptures to us. Thank you for all that it teaches us from so many different genres and stories through 1,500 years. Thank you that every word there is inspired by your spirit. And Lord, this series we're in together as three churches, Mosaic, the story of Joseph, has so much to teach us. It's been so rich already. And we pray, Lord, that as we come to these chapters now, Genesis 42 and 43, would you open our eyes once again, Holy Spirit, to see what it is that you have for us in your word, we pray. In your name, amen. Do you remember taking a test? Remember sitting at a school desk, maybe in, even in a gymnasium the size of this, and you sit there at your desk waiting for the exam paper or the test paper to be handed out, or just sit in the classroom for that? Some of you have just experienced that in the last few weeks, haven't you? For some of you, it's been five decades since you sat at a desk. But do you remember what that was like? Back at school, back at uni, waiting for that test, wondering if everything you've crammed into your head will still be there a few hours later, hoping against hope that you've prepped the right things that the questions are going to be asked that you planned on. Tests are are not that fun, are they? And it's not only school tests. What about driving tests? You remember the agony of turning up at the the, the testing station, or for those of us who are older, the police station, to sit with the cops and to go out for a driving test. It was only a few months ago that I was sitting there having taken our youngest son for his restricted. And he didn't want me in the car, so he went off with the instructor, and I'm sitting in the waiting room chatting with another dad whose daughter is out with a different instructor, and she came back in tears. My son came back with a huge grin. But the agony of a driving test. Or what about sitting in the waiting room of a, of a, um, of a clinic or a doctor's waiting for a blood test? I mean, some of you don't mind that, but there are some of us, including, we hate needles. And a blood test is the worst kind of test of all. But tests are part of life, aren't they? Whether it's a a school test, whether it's a blood test, a driving test, a physical test for the army or the police, we could go on, couldn't we? Life is filled with tests that we have to take. And while they're not fun, not enjoyable, they are an important part of life. And that's what we find as we come to this next segment in the story of Joseph. It's a, a message we've called testing. 
Because in Genesis 42, and actually it's Genesis 43 as well, we're going to look at some tests that happen in the story to Joseph's brothers. So if you've got a Bible with you, I'd love you to come with me to Genesis 42 and 43, paper Bible, app on your phone, whatever works for you. And we're going to dive into this next installment in the story. And we're now 20 years after the beginning of the story. 20 years have passed since Joseph, as a 17-year-old back in Genesis 37, was sold into slavery by his, his brothers in this dysfunctional and broken family that we met. And over the course of 13 years, Joseph was first a slave in the home of an Egyptian official named Potiphar, and then he was unfairly accused of a crime, if you remember, a few weeks ago, and ended up in prison. And for 13 years, he's a slave and a prisoner. We're not sure how that breaks up, that 13-year time period, but it's 30 years old. 13 years have gone by, before that incredible day that Reuben talked through last week, when in the space of one day, uh, Joseph is taken from the prison to the palace. And in the space of one day, he ends up as the governor, the prime minister, the, the grand vizier of Egypt. Now, another seven years have gone by. The seven years that Pharaoh's dream had, had foretold, seven years of plenty, seven years of abundance, seven years of harvest, and Joseph, the governor, has been leading Egypt through this time, gathering this abundance, this extra, into great barns and storage facilities, ready to feed the people when the seven years of famine hit. And now they hit. The start of Genesis 42, as we heard in the readings uh, for this particular message, the famine has now started. And so it's now, Joseph is about 37, maybe 38 years old, when chapter 42 dawns. 20 years have gone by. And he is now responsible for distributing the grain that has been stored up over seven years of plenty. And not only Egyptians are coming to buy that grain and, and to be fed and make sure they can put a meal on the table, but surrounding nations are coming to Egypt as well, from different nations all over the known world. And so as, as people came to buy, overseen by the governor, Joseph, he would have heard cultures and languages and seen different people from far and wide. And one day in the cacophony of voices, he hears the Hebrew dialect. He hears voices he has not heard for 20 years. He hears the language of home. And he looks across the room and there he sees his 10 brothers. Just put yourself in Joseph's sandals for a minute. How do you think he felt? What, what emotions raged through his body? I love the way best-selling author Max Licato describes the scene. The brothers were balder, grayer, rough skin. 20 years have gone by. Sweaty robes clung to their shins, road dust chalked their cheeks. These Hebrews stuck out in sophisticated Egypt like hillbillies at Times Square. I like that. But here's the problem. The hateful hillbillies. They're redneck hillbillies. They're murderous hillbillies. 20 years ago, they left their 17-year-old brother in a pit, planning to either murder him or leave him there to die. 
And then when they saw merchants coming, greed overwhelmed them and they sold their teenage brother for 20 pieces of silver. That's the hillbillies now in the room. So the question is this, what's Joseph going to do? What does Joseph do in this moment? Because at one end, he could turn around and just run to them, couldn't he? And embrace them and have a beautiful family reunion. But the question forever on his mind would be, surely, would they, did they regret that? Because I'll tell you what, when they realize their little brother that they sold into slavery is now the all-powerful governor of Egypt, you can bet they would now treat him really well. But was that real? Did they really care now? Had they actually changed? At the other extreme, what Joseph could do is he could take vengeance. The power is now in his hands. He could have them tossed into prison. And you wonder whether these options were weighing on his mind as they approached him. And he does neither. He doesn't take his revenge but neither does he warmly embrace them. Instead, verse 9 tells us of Genesis 42 that they come and they bow before him. Remember the dreams that Joseph had as a teenage boy? They've come to fulfillment 20 years later. His brothers are on their knees bowing before him. And while he's recognized them, they don't recognize him. He looks completely Egyptian at this point. He's clean-shaven because that was the Egyptian way. He's probably pale-skinned because the Egyptian nobility tried their best to stay out of the sun. So their servants were burnt dark by the sun, but if you were noble, you were pale-skinned. He would have been dressed exactly like an Egyptian nobleman would have. He'd been there for so many years. So they have no idea who this governor is that they are bowing to. But the question is, what does Joseph do? How does he treat these brothers? How does he move forward? One commentator, Tremper Longman, writes this. After the treatment he received at their hands, Joseph was not about to reveal his identity to them. Instead, he embarks on a strategy that will test their character. He wants to know if they are the same self-seeking, envious brothers who sold him into slavery. It's what Joseph does over the course of Genesis 42 and 43 as he comes up with four tests that he runs his brothers to. And what he's wanting to do is to reveal their character. He wants to get a sense, are these the same guys who sold me off into slavery so heartlessly, so ruthlessly, or has 20 years mallowed them? Have they come to the point where they regret now what they did? Have they changed? Or are they exactly the same guys who sold me down the river 20 years before? So he runs them through a series of four tests. The first test is what I call the compassion test. Do they care about a brother that's been thrown in the pit? See, what Joseph does in Genesis 42 is he puts all of them into prison for three days. He, he immediately puts them on the back foot by throwing them into prison, and he's not taking revenge on them. He is putting them on the back foot to make them get really afraid of what could happen. And so they spill the beans. They spill the beans about their dad and, and their younger brother, Benjamin, who's still at home with dad, which is great because Joseph wants to know if he's even still alive. And after three days, he brings them out of jail. 
And he said to them as he put them into jail, I want to know if you're honest men or not, because that's what they claim in verse 11. So I'm going to send one of you home to bring this so-called younger brother of yours to see if he's really real. And Joseph wants to see if he's really still alive. But after three days in prison, it seems as though he's changed his mind. And he says, I'll tell you what, I'll let you all go home with grain to feed your family, but I'll keep one brother here as insurance. And he pulls out Simeon, the second oldest, and he leaves him in prison and he lets the rest of the brothers head home. Why? What's he doing? Well, 20 years ago, he was the brother in the pit and they did not care one iota about him. And so the reason he's putting this test together is he's now putting another brother. One of them is now in jail, in the pit, Simeon. Do they care? As they head back to Canaan, back to, to their father, back to their homes, to their wives and kids, are they going to run back here to get Simeon out of jail? Or are they still as compassionless and as heartless as they ever were? Do they give a rip about their brother or not? That's the test. And then on top of that, he puts a second test, the greed test. See, 20 years ago, as they threw Joseph into a pit, they saw merchants come past, slave traders on their way to Egypt. And they thought, oh, let's make some money. Hey, a quick, a quick number of bucks. 20 pieces of silver he's worth. Brilliant. So this time, as they're heading home, the nine brothers left. As, as his servants fill their bags with grain, Joseph says, put their money, their silver, back in their bags. Because I want to see what they'll do when they get all the money back. And so they're halfway home. One of the brothers opens his sack and realizes there's money there. The silver hasn't been taken. But none of the others seem to check their bags until they get home. And then if you've got it there, look at chapter 42, verse 35. Genesis 42, verse 35. They're now home with their father. They've told their father everything that happened. And then it says, as they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was his pouch of silver. And when they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. Why? Because somehow there's been a mix-up. And they've got their money back. They haven't paid for all this grain. What are they worried the Egyptians are thinking of them? That they've stolen it. They kind of got a freebie and took off and didn't pay for it. So now Simeon's down in Egypt, but it's much harder for them to return to Egypt because they might be perceived as thieves. And on top of that, it's the greed test. They're all about money. They're all about silver. That's what they got for selling Joseph 20 years ago. Are they just going to take the money and run again and leave their brother in the pit? See, Joseph is recreating the scenario of 20 years before to test the character of his brothers. And then on top of that is the third test. The third test is this. Does our father even trust them? See, he had sent 10 boys down to Egypt, not 11. Benjamin wasn't allowed to come because Benjamin and Joseph were the two sons of his favorite wife, Rachel. And Joseph's gone. Jacob thinks he's dead. So only Benjamin is left from his beloved Rachel. So 
He doesn't let Benjamin go on the first trip. In fact, if you've got your Bible, look at verse 4 of Genesis 42. Genesis 42, we'll read from verse 3. Then 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. This is how the story begins. Verse 4, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others, because he was afraid that harm might come to him. Isn't that interesting? Who is Jacob afraid of? Has he carried for 20 years suspicions about 10 of his boys? Is there a hint here that he doesn't fully trust these 10 renegades? Or is it simply fear that he's already lost one of his two boys from Rachel and he doesn't want to lose the other one? I think it's ambiguous and that's deliberate. But the question is, will Jacob now release Benjamin to them? Because this governor in Egypt has made it clear when they come back on their second trip to get Simeon out of prison, they have to bring Benjamin with them. Will Jacob let them do that? To begin with, it doesn't look like it. You get to the end of chapter 42 when they've got back to their dad first of all. And here's what Jacob says at the very end of the chapter, verse 38. Jacob said, my son, talking about Benjamin, my son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you're taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. He didn't want to lose this last son of Rachel. But when you look at those words carefully, what you realize is this favoritism that has ripped this family apart, it's still there. Look at what Jacob says to his sons. His brother is dead, and Benjamin is the only one left. No, you've got 11 boys. No, I've lost one, and I only have one left. See, this is still a broken and dysfunctional family. And the question is that Joseph is testing here is will his dad trust these boys enough to send Benjamin? It ends up that the grain runs out and Jacob's hand is forced and he has to. And Judah makes a beautiful plea to entrust Benjamin's life to him and they end up heading back to Egypt. And so you read midway through verse, chapter 43 in verse 15, it says, so the men took the gifts that Jacob suggested they take to the governor and double the amount of silver so they could pay for the first lot of grain and the next installment. And it says they took Benjamin and they hurried down to Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. So these first three tests, well, do they care about their brother? Well, they didn't like get home and immediately head back for Egypt to sort Simeon out, did they? But they are heading back there. So can we call that a pass? Just? Kind of? I'm not sure Simeon enjoyed his months in prison, but maybe that's a pass. What about all that money? Well, it seems as though they're coming back to repay that and fix that up so the money hasn't maybe made the difference it did 20 years ago. Does their dad trust them with Benjamin? Well, not really, but he's had to. So it's, it's, it's a partial pass here, isn't it? 
for these tests. And so then Joseph concocts test number four. Test number four is the sin test. And this is the key one. Are his brothers still jealous? See, this is the heart of the story, isn't it? You go back to to chapter 37, when Joseph was 17 years old, this dysfunctional family, this is the ongoing repeat of the story. This is the description of the family. Jacob gives this beautiful robe to Joseph and the brothers hated him. And Joseph has a dream and they hated him all the more. And he tells them the dream, you're going to bow down to me. And they hate him all the more. And the brothers are jealous of him. And this is what stirs it up. So here's the question that Joseph has. Are you compassionate? Do you care now about one of your own, another brother in prison? Have you sorted out the greed issue? Or are you still driven by silver and by getting your hands on money? What about the trust issue? Does our father actually trust Benjamin into your care? And then ultimately, here's the question. Are you still the same man you were 20 years ago? Are you still eaten up with jealousy? Do you still hate the children of Rachel? Because our mother was the one that our father loved most. Does that still rip you guys apart 20 years on or not? And how Joseph sets up this last test is brilliant. They get back to Egypt, this time with Benjamin. Simeon is released from jail, so now there's the 11 of them. And they are taken to the home of Joseph. They are dead scared. But what in fact happens is Joseph welcomes them with a banquet. The steward says to them, don't worry about the money. There was a mix-up, but we got paid. So who knows what's happened there? You're fine. And then Joseph invites them to eat a meal. And they sit together at a banquet in the home of the Egyptian governor. And they sit at a table separate from the Egyptians because they don't you know, get on as well. But they are seated in birth order around the table. And the brothers are all like, what the heck? And then the meal comes out. And each of them receive a beautiful plate of food until the meal comes out to Benjamin, the youngest. And he gets five times the meal that anyone else gets. You see what Joseph's doing? Look at this, boys. He's the favorite even in Egypt. What are you going to do now? And this is the final test. The test that will only be resolved next week as it's taken one step further. If we step back for a minute from the story of Joseph and think about us, those aren't bad tests to stop and think through, are they? How would you have passed the test? If we, if we pull this out of Joseph's uniqueness and, and his dysfunction with his brothers, and, and just think about this generally for you and I, let me reword them for you. How have you gone this past week on the compassion test? As you look back on this last week, how have you done in caring for others? Have you been more concerned about their well-being and what's good for others around you at work and your family? Or have you been a bit more consumed with, hey, what's going on with me? This is what I need. Or how about the greed test? What's been your attitude to money this week? If God was to test you with cash, how would you come out? Remember reading these words from author Randy Alcorn years ago. When God provides more money, we often think this is a blessing. 
To which Alcorn wrote, well, yes, but it could be just as scriptural to think this is a test. What if God put a dollop of silver in your sack this week? How would you pass the test? Or what about the trust test? Do those around you instinctively find you to be a trustworthy person? Are you a a woman or a man of character that people immediately come to? You're the person they need to talk to. Or do people just not quite sure you're the right person? Or what about that sin test? Have we put our past sins behind us? Have we managed through the power of the Holy Spirit and and, and the work of discipline and and cooperating with God and His Word? Have we moved beyond some of those patterns of sin or are we still struggling with stuff that we've struggled with for years? It's quite sobering, isn't it? And as you think about these tests, I don't know where you're at, but but maybe maybe some of us are going, yeah, it's all right, I'm not doing too bad. I'm certainly not a straight A, but there's a couple of good solid C pluses in there. Others of us may be going, oh, shucks. I'm glad I wasn't handed this paper this last week. But maybe we were, folks. Maybe we were. See, I want to suggest to you that something even deeper is going on in this story. Joseph is laying out these tests for his brothers because he wants to rightly know can he have a relationship with these guys going forward? Are they, are they trustworthy men? Have they changed? Or are they still exactly the same and he could never actually have a meaningful relationship with them? That's where the story is going. And so what Joseph is doing is he is giving these tests to reveal the character of his brothers. But at the same time, God's doing something. At a deeper level, God is using these tests that Joseph is doing to reveal their character. God's using those same tests to refine their character. God is trying to refine them. God is at work in the lives of these men, transforming them and changing them. And he, in fact, uses these very tests to begin that work. If you've still got your Bible there, have a look. Chapter 42 and verse 21. This is where they've just come out of prison after three days. And Joseph's told them, I'm going to keep one of you in Egypt as a bond of good behavior, basically. And the rest of you can go home. Verse 21. They said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. Which brother? Joseph, they are looking at what's happening to them this day with the Egyptian governor. Without knowing, this is Joseph testing them. But they are now beginning to think about what they did 20 years ago. And look at what they say to each other in the next sentence. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life in the pit. And we wouldn't listen. That's why this distress has come on us. You know, what, you know what I want to suggest? I think this is the first time in 20 years these guys have actually confessed to what they did. I think God has allowed this test to take hap- happen in their lives through their brother Joseph 
He thinks it's to reveal their character. I think God's using this to refine them and bring them face to face with the reality of what they did 20 years before. And for the very first time, these men are now confessing what it is they got wrong. Or drop your eyes down, same chapter to verse 27. This is when they're on the, on the journey home. At the place where they stopped for the night, verse 27, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey, and he saw his silver in the mouth of the sack. My silver's been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in the sack. And their hearts sank, and they turned to each other trembling and said, what is this that God has done to us? See, the first time in 20 years, the sons of Jacob, I think, are thinking about God. For the first time in 20 years, they're thinking about what they did to their brother 20 years before and realizing maybe for the first time how wrong that was. For the first time, these boys of Jacob are being confronted with the evilness of their own hearts and the brokenness and dysfunction of their own family. Why? Because this is what God is doing in this story. Joseph is setting up tests to reveal their character. God's using those tests to refine their character. And I want to suggest that that is really the key idea of this part of the story. In the school of life, God's tests graciously refine our character. It's true, isn't it? It's what God's about. God is about taking broken, dysfunctional people who become part of his family. And God is about refining us. God is about transforming us. God is about changing us. God is about rubbing off the rough edges of our lives. God is about stripping away the idols that we pursue. God is about putting his finger on the junk inside of us. God is about picking up all of the brokenness and the dysfunction within us and doing something beautiful with the brokenness of our lives. See, as we come over to the New Testament, this is what the New Testament will tell us as followers of Jesus time and time again. For example, James begins this way. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. How many make that a life verse? Most of us really don't like James, eh? Really? We face a battle with cancer. We face our kids walking away from faith. We face financial ruin or bankruptcy or redundancy. We face long-term health issues. And we're meant to consider it pure joy. Who does that? At least who's sane and does that? But notice what James is saying. James is not saying take joy in the hardship. What he's saying is that consider it joy when you face hardship because you know that the what? The testing of your faith produces perseverance. What James is saying is that we're to find joy in the hardships and difficulties and tests of life, not in those things, 
but in the knowledge that God is using the tests we face to do something amazing in us. The writer to the Hebrews will say the same thing in Hebrews chapter 12. It's one of the passages, if you're taking the nine-week challenge with us in the book we've put together, Hebrews 12 is one of the readings you will do this coming week. And he ends his, his passage on discipline this way. God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. See, God allows stuff to take place in our lives. Do you know why? Because he wants you to look more and more like Jesus. And I love this next line. No discipline it seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Amen to that. But later on, however, the writer says, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. In other words, for those of us who will sit down at the desk and take the tests that God brings into our lives and think that through well and cooperate with God in the midst of the tests, what we will find as we cooperate with the Spirit who's at work with us through life, we're becoming more and more like Jesus. See, this is, this is what the Christian life, folks, is all about. God in his grace welcomes us to come just as we are. We, we come as we are, broken, sinful, dysfunctional, messed up. We learned that, didn't we, at the start of the series? We're all like this family. And God says, come as you are. You don't need to clean your life up. Just come and put your faith in Jesus. But God in his grace says, come as you are. And then God in his grace says, and now I'm going to change you. Now I'm going to put my spirit in you. Now I'm going to put you in a community of faith. Now I'm going to let you experience the beauty of a love through Jesus that will never let you go. And now I'm going to begin the work of changing you. You come as you are, that's grace. But grace is also, now let me refine you. Let me change you. Let me develop you. And what's going on in this mosaic story in Genesis is that God is refining this man named Joseph. And God is refining his brother, Judah. And God is refining Simeon. And God is refining Gad. And God is refining Asher. And each of these boys, part of the family and the story of faith, God is at work refining them, changing them. And as we're going to see next week, transforming them in beautiful ways. And so this message is about the fact that God is in the process of testing you and I. Not to reveal our character. He already knows our character. But to refine it and to transform it and to change it so that we are more and more like Jesus. I wonder what the tests are that you're facing today. wonder what school God's got you in. I think some of you here today, God has you in the school of hardship. Some of the stuff we just mentioned a few minutes ago. Cancer diagnosis. Kids who are going off the rails. 
financial difficulties. Maybe it's a marriage that's very unstable. Maybe it's aging parents and it's the first stages of dementia. There's so many tough things in life, isn't there? What if God's got you in the school of hardship right now? And he's got you sitting at the desk taking a test today. What he's inviting you to do is to ask a simple question. What do you want me to learn, Lord, from this test in front of me? What is it you want me to understand? How is it that you want me to grow? What are you doing as I face this test today? Some of you aren't in the school of hardship. You're on the other side of the campus. You're in the school of success. Life's great. Honestly, it's hard to think of a time where it's been better. Marriage has gone pretty good. Kids seem to be behaving themselves as far as we know. Career's taking off. Mortgage is coming down. Health is good. Life's pretty sweet. But didn't we learn last week with Reuben that in the summer seasons of life, those can actually be some of the greatest times of temptation and problems? As it's so easy to assimilate into our culture rather than maintaining our distinctiveness? So if you're in the school of success, can I suggest you're simply sitting at a different desk, but it's still a test. And it's the same set of questions. Where is God in this test? What is he wanting to teach me? How is he wanting me to grow? What do I need to learn as he refines me? Some of you, can I suggest, are not in either the school of hardship or the school of success. You're in the in-between. I call it the school of boredom. Your life is decidedly average. You know, your marriage is okay, but it's not that good. Your kids are a bit of a pain in the neck, but they're all right. You got an okay job, but really doesn't do that much for you. You don't get really that excited about much, and really the, the, the whole tone of life's kind of grey. Is that some of you? So here's the question. You're sitting at a desk, and God's got a test. And it's the same questions. What's God teaching you in the midst of your average life? In the middle of your mediocrity, what are you learning? What's God showing you? What is God doing here and now in your life? Or the school of disappointment. And just this past week, something's gone weird, something's gone crazy. It's not long-term hardship, but, you know, something's happened. A dream has been shattered. A hope lies fallen on the ground. An idol, perhaps, has been uncovered. What's God doing? What's the test? See, here's what I want to suggest, folks. We're all sitting at a desk today. And we're all facing a test. Doesn't matter what season of life we're in. Doesn't matter what age or stage we are. It doesn't matter whether life is fabulous or horrible or somewhere in between. We are sitting at a desk and we are facing a test today. And God wants to refine us to become more like Jesus. Where is he working right now 
in your life? Where do you need to be more aware of his presence? Where do you need to think more deeply about the questions he is asking of you? And how does he want you to grow today? Because God gives us tests not to reveal our character, but to refine it and help us become more like Jesus. In a moment, I want to pray for you and for me because we're in this together. But then after I pray, we're going to take communion together. A simple wafer, just a little goblet of juice. And we're going to take that to remind us about Jesus, of all that he has done for us, of how God welcomes us if we've accepted Jesus by faith, how God welcomes us into his family and loves us with a love that will never let us go. Not because we're worthy of that, but because Jesus passed the test with an A+. Plus, and I get his test results. So I want to invite you to come and take communion this morning. Here at the front, or there's a couple of tables at the back. And I want you to invite you to come with two things in mind. Number one, if you've put your trust in Jesus, the tests of life are not about revealing your character or punishing you for failure because you are fully and deeply loved in Christ. So come with a heart of thankfulness. But come too with a heart of question. Lord, what are you doing in me now? How are you wanting me to grow today? What is the test that you have before me? And how do you want to work in me to make me more like Jesus? So let me pray. We're going to take communion together. God, thank you that in your grace, you've invited each of us to come just as we are. Thank you that we come with our sin, our brokenness, our evil, our self-centeredness. And you welcome us in any way because of the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. Thank you that his A-plus gets put on our report card. And because of him, we are deeply and fully and eternally loved. And we come today in that love. God, thank you too that you don't leave us in our mess. You're refining us. You're changing us. And as we're going to learn next week, you are transforming us to become way more like Jesus than we could have ever believed. But help us as we sit at a desk today, each of us, Help us to realize what you're doing in our lives. Help us to understand the test that this season we're in right now is giving us. And help us to be prepared to grow and to move with you and to let you refine us and help us become more like your son. We ask this in your name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.